Amos chapter 7. I'll read for us the whole chapter and then we'll, we'll study it together. This is what the Lord Yahweh showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. And this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. And it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And I said, oh, Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile, away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away from the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You said, don't prophesy against Israel and don't preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. So reads the word of the living God. The Bible is the most burned book in history. It began before even the completion of the New Testament. About 100 BC, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes uh, took over Jerusalem and burned every Torah scroll he could find. After the completion of the New Testament, uh, persecution ramped up for the early church. In about 300 AD, a Roman emperor named Diocletian burned thousands of Bibles, outlawed Bibles entirely. And if you were found with a Bible in your home, he'd burn the home too. The Council of Tarragona, this is a church council in 12, 
34 AD, quote, no one may possess the books of the Old and New Testaments, and if anyone possesses them, he must turn them over to the local bishop within eight days so that they may be burned. The Roman Catholic Church, particularly in the Middle Ages, one of the most uh, violent opponents of the Word of God, burning the scriptures regularly when it was translated into the vernacular for people to be able to read it. William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English, was burned at the stake, strangled, and blown up with gunpowder. November 9th, 1938, Nazi soldiers torched 1,400 synagogues and threw countless Torah scrolls into the flames. Just a couple years ago, there's a guy at a bonfire in Tennessee who had a Bible, held it up, shouted, Hail Satan, and threw it into the flames. This isn't an ancient problem. In fact, there are 28 countries, according to the Voice of the Martyrs, 28 countries today where it is illegal to own a Bible. And in most of those countries, if you have one and they find out, they will burn it. The Bible is the most burned book in all of history. The question, of course, is why? Because it's so hated. Why is it so hated? What did Jesus say? John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hates you. The world hates God's word. And so they try to burn whatever version of it they can get their hands on. They hate the written word because they hate the incarnate word. Hatred of God's word is nothing new. It has existed since the garden. <laughs> Did God really say? My guess is you have experienced some degree of this in your life. Maybe family members or co-workers. You, you believe the Bible? You're one of those Bible thumpers, Bible believers, bigots who stand on an old book, that's backwards. That's wrong. We know better. If that's been your experience, and I suppose that it has for many, do you feel burned out by that? Do you feel crushed a little bit, beat down? Like you keep sharing the gospel with people at work and they just keep rejecting it. You keep telling your family members and your friends, hey, I want you to come to church with me. They just, oh, no thanks, you can have your thing, I'll do mine. What do you do when you encounter that kind of opposition to the word of God in your life? I think that's one of the reasons that this chapter is in our Bibles. Because Amos also knew what it was like to encounter hatred of God's word. Amos, the Tekoan shepherd turned prophet, also experienced opposition because of his heralding of the word of God. And his response, I think, is a model for us today when we encounter the same. Now, to be able to understand what's going on here, we need to back up, get some background on Amos. My guess is it's not where you were doing your devotions yesterday, so... Amos is writing in 760 BC. This is during the divided kingdom era. 
there's two kingdoms. Ten tribes go into the north. They form Israel. Two tribes in the south. It's Judah. Israel, really bad, worshiping idols all the time. Judah, mostly bad, but sometimes good. And uh, Amos is from the south. He's from a place called Tekoa. It's just south of Bethlehem. And he's been commanded by God to cross the border from the southern into the northern kingdom to Bethel, which is like right on the border. It's like a border town. And to go into that town and to start preaching against the northern kingdom. So like think civil war, guy from the south going to the north saying y'all are bad. (laughs) That's what's going on here. He's preaching judgment against the rampant iniquity of Israel. Israel, the northern kingdom that he's preaching against, is under the leadership of Jeroboam II. And they had been plunged in this time into just new depths of depravity. Amos catalogs it at various points. Gross immorality, wanton idolatry, vain worship, injustice. It says in chapter 5, verse 10, that they hate the word of God. They hate the prophecies of God. But what's so fascinating about this particular moment in Israel's history is that at the same time, things are going really well for them. In fact, if you read 2 Kings 14, what you find out is that in this very same time, there was a prophet named Jonah, yes, that Jonah, who showed up and started preaching prosperity from God to the people. He said, your borders are going to expand. There's all these geopolitical things going on, and they were able to conquer more lands and get a lot more money. So what's happening is they're worshiping more idols, and their lives are getting better. So they think this is working out really well. And then along comes this wool-wearing, fig-chewing, angry-looking prophet crossing the border, and he says, God's going to judge you for that. In order to understand how God's word is received, we'll jump right into the action. First part of this is God's word revealed. God's word revealed in verses 1 to 9. Amos writes, this is what the Lord God showed me. He's going to delineate three visions that he saw and then apparently explained in kind of a public sermon. You can imagine he's standing in the town square in Bethel. Maybe there's a golden calf standing right next to him. And he's preaching and telling them, this is what God showed me in a vision. There's three visions. Here's the first one. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. So vision one is a judgment by locusts, which should not be surprising if you've read the book of Joel or if you've read Deuteronomy 28, this is one of the covenant curses. God promised that if they disobeyed, if they gave into idolatry, he was going to eat up all their food with locusts. This latter growth language is just saying, this is spring, it's after the harvest, everyone got all their food in, they are fat and happy. This is a prosperous time. And it's at that very moment in this vision that the locusts descend and they eat everything. Verse 2, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. So Amos who again, remember, he's from the south. He would have been, by nationality, a kind of enemy of the north. This preacher loves his enemies. He prays for them. 
That's not just a New Testament thing. (laughs) That happened in the Old Testament too. He prayed for them. Oh God, please forgive. He's asking God to spare them. And then he says this, how can Jacob stand, speaking of the Northern Kingdom, he is so small. Oh, what a statement that is. Israel had never been bigger. From their own perspective, they were huge. And yet from heaven's point of view, they were so puny. (laughs) You see what he's saying? Oh, that they knew how small they were. Don't you think it's the case that there's things in your life that come into your vision and they seem to just be so big that everything else is clouded out. It's like, that's the only thing. What Amos is calling us to do here is to have a wider perspective. Indeed, a 10,000 foot view. And to see from God's perspective, even a big old powerful nation like Israel is pathetic. It's nothing. I remember flying out from DCA not that long ago. And as we were taking off, seeing it was kind of a sunny day, there's some clouds and a cloud happened to pass by and just cast a shadow over the Capitol building and the White House. I thought, that's just God with his thumb. You don't realize how small you are, do you? You leaders of the free world, you powerful nation. Remember how Isaiah says it? Isaiah chapter 40. The nations and the coastlands are to me like a drop in a bucket. They're like fine dust. He says, all of the nations are to me as nothing. Tiny. Amos is saying, oh God, they don't get it. They don't understand how powerless they are before you. That's the heart of a shepherd, I think. He wants to protect the sheep. And so he prays and God's response, it says, verse three, the Lord relented concerning this. Very same language that we just read in Jonah chapter three. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be. God who said through this vision, this judgment could come, responds to this intercession by Amos and says, okay, okay, I won't destroy them that way. I'll have mercy. However, that's not where it ends. There's another vision. Vision number two, verse four, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep and it was eating up the land. This is a worse judgment than the previous one. Because not only is it eating up all of the crops, now this is drying up the rivers. That's the language here. It's drying up the lakes. Everything is gone. This is like apocalyptic kind of language, like Revelation 8. And so he prays again. Then I said, oh Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. Again, he's pleading for mercy, a stay of execution on this wicked nation that thinks it's in the right. And again, verse 6, the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. But then there's a third vision. 
And this one works a little different because he doesn't show him a vision and then say, what do you see? And, and then he prays and responds. It doesn't work like that. Verse 7, this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. Now, there's some debate in the text about what the word plumb line means, and there's lots of articles that have been written about it. Let me give you a short version. It means plumb line. <laughs> Just the word for lead. <clears throat> and the way that it worked in the ancient Near East, it's kind of like how we would use a level. They have a string and a piece of lead at the bottom, and they would hold it up just to see if a wall, when they're building it, is straight up and down. That's how this would work. So he says, I'm showing you a plumb line and a wall that was built with the plumb line, and I'm bringing that plumb line back to the wall. What's going on there? Well, the plumb line here is representing God's word, God's law. God built his people with his word, with his law. That's how the nation of Israel came about. At Mount Sinai, God delivered a law and he said, this is the nation you're supposed to be. So Israel cannot go back to the builder, go to the contractor and say, you mess this thing up. No, no, no. It was good from the beginning. But now I'm coming back years and years later with that very same level that I used at the beginning. And I want to know, has the foundation moved? Are there cracks has it gone astray? Is it bent and leaning? Or is it straight up and down the way I made it? God is going to measure his people against his word. That's what he says. Verse 8, And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? I said, a plumb line. And then he said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. Pass by like I won't overlook their sins. I've been patient. I could have brought the plumb line a lot sooner. But I'm, I've been patient up until now. But no more. And what will happen when they are measured by God's word? Verse 9. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. In a word, it's judgment. <laughs> They don't measure up. Of course they don't. I mean, just, just take a brief survey. At this point in time, they're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping Asherah. It's like a, a female figure that they would put in the temple. They're worshiping Kiyun, the star god. You don't have to get complicated here. Ten commandments. Commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. How are they doing? Not great. So they failed and judgment is coming. I mean, particularly on Bethel. This is where he's preaching would have been one of the sites of their false worship. And he says he's going to bring down the leadership of Israel. I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Which God is just fulfilling a promise that he made to Jehu, who's Jeroboam's granddad. His son eventually is born, Zechariah, six months on the throne, assassinated. God's just keeping his word. I think the thing that we should take away from this, there's a number of things, but one thing to take away is that the word of God, when it encounters sinners, is always confrontational. It must be. Of course it is. It's the speech from the holy heavens 
Of course it is offensive and it ought to be to sinners. That's why Jeremiah describes the Bible as a fire, a hammer. You've heard Hebrews 4. It's a sword that pierces. As the poet once said, young men, young men, your arms are too short to box with God. If God's holy word encounters us and measures us, how do we measure up? been said that the problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them. I understand that. God's word should confront us. It shouldn't leave us comfortable. And you then, as an ambassador of God's word, with this message, you should expect that when you preach it, it will be confrontational. I, I'm so weary of Christians imagining that when they show up with a Bible in their hand and a smile on their face, that all their co-workers are just going to come pouring into the church. <laughs> like, oh, that sounds great. I want another club that's going to tell me I'm a sinner and I'm going to go to hell for all of that. Is that what you expect? This is kind of a reality check for us, isn't it? No, that's not how God's word comes to sinners ever. It is always a measuring line. And we don't measure up. And so, one of the things to take away from this too is Amos does not have the luxury as a messenger of the Word of God to alter the message to make it less confrontational. You appreciate that when he says this, he's standing in Bethel, in enemy territory, and he's looking at them and he's like, Oh, you're so small. <laughs> you're so pathetic. You don't get it. He's preaching about judgment that is going to come. The exile is coming. That's exactly what he's prophesying about. You don't get to change the message. You're a waiter. You're not the chef. You just bring out the food. If they don't like it, that's on them. God's word divides right from wrong, truth from error, black from white. Honestly, if they like it, that's when you should be concerned. If immediately when you say Jesus Christ, the eternal God, came down to earth and lived a perfect life, died an atoning death because of your wickedness and sin, he rose from the grave in order that he might change who you are in order to transport you to an eternity in which you do not belong so that you might worship him forever. If the response to that is sign me up right away, you should at least ask a question or two. <laughs> Praise the Lord, that is how God converts, that is how God saves. But it's often also the message that is rejected and scorned and mocked. And that's exactly what we see here in the next part of this text. God's word not only is revealed, but God's word is rejected. God's word is rejected. Whenever God's word is revealed, it inevitably meets with human disapproval. Look at verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel. So, He's the guy who works there. This is his, think of it like a megachurch. 
where they're worshiping cows and stars. He's the guy in charge of the worship, the false worship. And he hears this message being preached in the public square, and he says, I'm going to tell teacher. I'm going to tell the king that you're doing all this nonsense. And so this is what he says. Amos has conspired against you. It's just character assassination. He makes it a, a man issue. Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. Your own turf. The land is not able to bear all his words. Amaziah sends a message complaining that Amos is too negative. <laughs> too negative. And you have to ask the question, for Amaziah, this priest, what's his plumb line? What's his standard? What's his measurement by which he judges whether or not this is an acceptable message to hear? And he tells you. He says, the land is not able to bear all his words, meaning the people do not like it. His plumb line is public approval. The people don't like all of this judgment preaching. Good night. Guy coming back on a white sword with a white horse with a sword in his mouth and blood on his robe. You can't preach that way. That's too much. People keep saying nasty things about that guy. Get him out of here. He changed the standard from God's word to man's approval. He is saying Amos is a dangerous, violent revolutionary, and he has to be silenced. And then he repeats basically the prophecy, verse 11, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. That's more or less what he said. It's a little exaggerated, but basically true. And then verse 12, he turns to Amos, and he says to him, Oh, seer, which is like a word for witch doctor. <laughs> hey, you witch doctor, get out of here. Flee away. Go to the land of Judah. Just go home. And he says, eat bread there. Prophesy there. L listen, why, why are you trying to prophesy in this place where nobody likes what you have to say? Just go say that where people will amen it. Go be comfortable over there. Go back to Judah. They love anti-Israel sermons. Just a couple of years ago in Finland, there was a member of parliament who was in the midst of several debates that they were having about uh, same-sex unions. And she took to Twitter and uh, took a picture of her Bible and for that was sanctioned by the Finnish government. <laughs> the picture of the Bible in Finnish was from Romans 1. But I hope you appreciate all she did was just say, hey, here it is. This is what it says. And she almost lost her job for it. This is how it has gone for most Christians throughout church history. Amaziah here making it illegal now for him to preach the Bible, preach this prophecy in Israel, that's how most of Christians have experienced the world. We have a strange 300-year kind of reprieve here in America 
It's starting to come to an end, it seems. But most Christians throughout church history, and indeed across the world today, when they preach the word of God, they do not expect it to be received well. They understand that it will be rejected. There's a couple in Mexico right now, Mateo and Elena, who are planning a church in an area that's called the Circle of Silence. It's an area of southern Mexico where a syncretistic religion is taken over and ruled by the cartels, such that if you start preaching the gospel, you're immediately persecuted, which is exactly what's happened to them. They've had their tires slashed. Their girls who are at a school have been bullied for being Christians. Uh, they've had men show up at their doors with guns threatening them. They received a letter taped to their door that said, quote, first warning, you must leave. You may not preach, you or your wife. That's normal Christianity. North Korea has executed believers within the last few years simply for handing out Bibles. If you were to go to Pakistan today, you would find out that a family of Christians who held a Bible study in their home were all taken to jail for having Bibles, including the two-year-old. God's word, when it is revealed, is always rejected. Experientially, I've, I've seen this with, I do college ministry down at Emmanuel and talk to students in their classes. Here are all kinds of stories. I'm in biology class. <laughs> Where did human beings come from? I talked to a student the other day who said that he's in a philosophy class and they were starting to say there's no truth and all that. And he raised his hand and he said, I think there is. <laughs> I think there's truth. There's a, a member of our church who works at NASA. And when the James Webb telescope came out with those images a number of years ago, and it said, you know, the, the universe is way bigger than anyone thought it was, which is no surprise to Christians, but, you know, everyone else is like, whoa. He was there and they handed him the mic for all of NASA on a live televised conference. So, I mean, just get the scene in your mind. Big pictures, universe, way bigger than you ever thought. Here's the mic. What are you going to say? What would you say? You know what he said? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> and you know, he almost lost his job for that. Of course. How many of y'all are high school students here? Any high school students? Handful? No, they're in like high school. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. A couple of you guys. Do you... There was a study that came out last year that said one-fourth of all high school students in America today would identify as LGBTQIA, of some form of that. Do you realize how small a minority you have become? Just so quickly. How do you respond to that? God's word revealed, it's going to be rejected. How do you respond? And here's... Where Amos goes, God's word remains. God's word remains. Verse 14. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. He's like, listen, this wasn't my idea. 
I was just out in the field tending sheep, cutting down some figs, and God was the one who said I had to go speak. This isn't my message. I'm just a messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. When the world hates you, know that it hated me. But, he says, verse 15, the Lord took me from following the flock and he said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. This is God's message. It's almost like when he's telling them this, he's got his finger in the text. And then I love this, verse 16. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. (laughs) You say, don't preach. Respectfully, here's a sermon. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord. When the world says, do not preach, the church says, thus saith the Lord. The word of God remains despite all of the vicissitudes of humanity's ups and downs, despite the waves and the crashing of humanity's rebellion against God. God's word remains. And Amos knows that. Listen, he appreciates that when God said they're going into exile, that's what's going to happen. And you know how he knows that? Because God said it. That's the power of the word of God over and against the word of any man. God's word will always remain. So our response to being told stop preaching is to respectfully say, I'm sorry, but I must keep preaching. And why? Chapter 3, verse 8. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Like, you want me to ignore him? (laughs) Rather than you? You want me to pay attention to the hissing of a house cat over the roaring of a lion? I love this. I'm just going to, I love this story. There's a guy named Robert Bruce, not the one from the movie, different guy. Robert Bruce, who was a preacher in Scotland in uh, the 1500s, 1600s, and he was preaching before the king, King Edward VI. And King Edward VI, who didn't particularly love him, was starting to just chat during his sermon, which nobody will ever do, obviously. But he was chatting during the sermon. And so he stopped in the middle of his sermon and looked at him until he got his attention and they kept preaching. He starts chatting again. He stops, he looks at him, and he keeps preaching. He does it a third time. (laughs) And he looks at him and he says, the lion has roared. And it would do well for petty kings to pay attention. (laughs) Whose voice is more important? Honestly, ask yourself. Whose voice matters more to you? This is a bold, righteous stand on the word of God. And, And the words that he delivers are really just application of the covenant curses that God has already given in Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. He says, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. 
You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Meaning, all of the things that God already said in His Word would happen if you rejected His Word will happen. (laughs) You fancy yourself a clean priest, you're going to die in an unclean land. You fancy yourself someone who is blessed by God, you are going to lose all of it. And Israel shall surely, he says, emphasizing it, surely, it will definitely happen, go into exile away from its land, which is exactly what happened in 722 when Assyria came in and destroyed Israel. Now let me clarify a couple things. One, this is not a license to be unkind. If the way that you speak God's word is not only confident and bold, but also mean and self-righteous and prideful, you have just undercut the very character of God's word. Remember Amos' attitude in this. He prayed for them. He pled with God to spare them. So we can't be rude or unkind in the way that we present God's word, even though we ought to be uncompromising and clear. John Bunyan, you would know him from Pilgrim's Progress, a Puritan who was also a preacher, was thrown in jail for 12 years of his life. He had a wife and several kids, one of whom was a dear daughter to him who was blind. And they told him at multiple points throughout his imprisonment, If you will just stop preaching the gospel, we'll let you go. And you know what he said? I will stop preaching when the moss grows over my eyeballs. You can keep me in jail. He's not a revolutionary. He's not coming in there with a sword, trying to defend himself. He just preaches the word and lets God take care of the rest. Amos, I think, is an example for us of what it looks like to boldly, confidently, and truthfully herald God's word for the sake of lost souls. So brothers and sisters, when you are being bullied into silence, by those around you who maybe know you very well and know the buttons to push. (laughs) Or maybe it's just classmates or coworkers, friends, when they just want to shut it down, your responsibility, according to the Word of God, is to respectfully say, whether it is right for me to obey man rather than God, you can decide that in your own eyes, but I cannot but speak. For God has commanded my mouth. And so it will. Where will you speak? Where must you bring the word? Appreciate that just a chapter later, chapter 8, verse 11, there's a day coming. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land 
not a famine of bread nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That is the most terrifying judgment anyone could ever face. That's worse than fire. That's worse than bugs. Not being able to hear God's voice. And friends, that day is coming on this land. On this whole earth, that day is coming. But now you have a time, you have a moment, a brief window in your life where God has put you into the lives of other people who one day will face that famine unless you open your mouth and speak. The Lord Jesus Christ is calling to himself all of his elect, all whom he has predestined from before the foundation of the earth. They're out there and they just need to hear the word and you have been given it. So will you be silent or will you speak? There's a day coming when there's a famine. Let it not be today. Let it not be this week that you are silent. But may you speak and speak truth so that they may hear. And maybe God will relent in His mercy. Jeremiah chapter 36 Jeremiah is preaching and writing down all of his words. And someone gets a, a copy of all of his writings and brings it to King Jeconiah. It's winter. He's got a fire in front of him. He takes a, a little knife, starts carving up the words and tossing them in strips into the fire. This is what I think of you and your word. Jeremiah. You know what Jeremiah's response is? He goes back to his assistant. He says, rewrite it. And this time add some judgment for that king. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. And now we have Jeremiah, the longest book in the Bible. It is a wonder of God's grace that the most burned book in all of human history is also the most heard book in all of human history. It is the bestseller of all of human history. It is the word that has turned this world upside down. And it is the word that for this brief moment has been entrusted to you, friends, and to me. So what will you do with it? Will you speak? Or will you be silent? Know that if you speak, if you choose to open your mouth, and I pray that you do, here's the promise. All flesh is as grass. Beauty of the flower of the field. All flesh is as grass here today and gone tomorrow, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. Let's pray. Oh God, give us sweet confidence in your word. Knowing that this 
is the eternal truth and none other. God, give us the boldness that we need this week to be ambassadors for the sake of Christ and the sake of lost souls. Give us gentle, gracious words to speak. Pry apart our quivering lips. Put steel in our backs. Strengthen our weak knees. That we might stand and speak so that the lion may roar. Oh God, your word is precious beyond words. May we dedicate our lives to its study, its application, and its proclamation. And may we one day greet in heaven a receiving line of redeemed sinners who have found their way into the halls of eternity by means of our speech of your word. May your gospel go forward with power. Protect your people and prosper your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.